coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. We were tasked with, number one, preventing a second 9-11 and also preventing Afghanistan from becoming a, a safe haven. Um, and we did that for 20 years. There was no second 9-11. And so their, their mission was a success and it had great value. My wife and I started this foundation and my wife and I have been to Afghanistan seven times together now. And we've built schools for girls and put legs on kids. We've sent three and a half million pounds of humanitarian aid there. And in our seven trips there, we would stay about a month at a time and uh, do our work. And we're still continuing to do our work. How veterans responded to what happened when we pulled out of Afghanistan and their first reaction in their pain was to reach out and start, you know, figuring out who was it that we can help get out of Afghanistan or who we can help, you know, provide safety for while they're still there. And and so I guess my answer to the question is what we have learned over these past 20 years is 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 part of a I guess the human condition of wanting to serve and and needing to serve as giving ourselves maybe significance and meaning and how are we honoring that? Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness National Director Ben Goodman. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me, as always, the National Director of Mission Readiness, Ben Goodman. Ben, good to see you. It's great to see you, General Gross. And, you know, we're here at the end of the year wishing our members a, a, a happy, healthy holiday season and start to 2022. Before we move on, it's time to reflect on, on a lot that's happened this year. I know that our members in the broader veteran community were really paying attention and really in tune to two significant milestones that happened this year. Uh, we had the, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks and withdrawal from Afghanistan. And of course, we, you and I have been talking for a while with John and the Pod Squad team about putting together uh, one of our podcasts and talking to some of our members about these important events. And, and so on today's show, we're going to do just that. We're going to reflect back, think about Afghanistan, think about 9-11, and see where we go from here. So without further ado, let's talk to our three panelists on the Mission Readiness Podcast. Well, today on the Mission Readiness Podcast, we have something of a departure from our usual topics. This past September marked the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks that changed our nation. Our members are veterans at Mission Readiness, and many of us served in the post-9-11 conflicts, myself included. So we thought it might be appropriate to reflect back on the past 20 years and what we've learned since 2001. I have three special guests to help me do that. My first guest is retired Air Force Lieutenant General John Allen Bradley. John was commissioned in the Air Force in 1967 and retired from service in 2008. He flew combat missions in Vietnam. At the pinnacle of his career, he served as the commander of the United States Air Force Reserve Command and the commander of Headquarters Air Force Reserve at Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia. 
After retiring, John and his wife founded the Lamia Afghan Foundation in 2008 and have spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. The foundation built schools and clinics and helped children injured during the war. And the Bradleys were very active during the evacuation of Afghanistan earlier this year. We're also joined by retired Army Brigadier General Jack Hammond, who was a guest on our podcast in November 2020. Jack served two years in Afghanistan in 2002 and again in 2011. He commanded troops at all levels. He currently serves as the executive director for Home Base, a Red Sox foundation and a Massachusetts General Hospital program that is dedicated to healing the invisible wounds of war affecting service members, veterans and their families including post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. Our final guest is retired Air Force Brigadier General Dana Bourne. Dana was a guest on our podcast in March, where she spoke about her experiences as the commander at Boeing Air Force Base during the September 11 attacks. Dana was commissioned in the Air Force in 1983 and retired from service in 2013. She also served in Afghanistan, and her distinguished career included service as the first woman dean of faculty of the U.S. Air Force Academy from 2004 to 2013. Dana currently lectures at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. John, Jack, Dana, thank you so much for joining me today on the Mission Readiness Podcast. Well, I'd like to start with that day itself. I'm sure we all remember where we were. I was on an overseas training mission with an army unit when the planes hit the tower, and I still remember the emotions of that day, anger, frustration, sadness, the whole range. But I don't think at that time we fully understood how much the world had changed and would continue to change. John, would you tell us about your memories of that day? Vivid as as with everyone, I'm sure. But I was in a course at Maxwell Air Force Base, a joint flag officer warfighter course that's supposed to prepare officers for uh, higher level duties, perhaps be combatant commanders. I was the I was uh, a full-time Air Force Reserve officer, commander at 10th Air Force, but and so I was not going to be a combatant commander, but they wanted uh, to put a reservist in the course. So I'm at Maxwell and uh, it was the second day of this two-week course. At the end of the first day, Monday, September 10th, retired General Charles Wilhelm, who'd been the commander, uh, his Marine officer, commander of U.S. Southern Command, gave us a fabulous two-hour talk, probably the most eloquent Marine I've ever heard speak, or any officer, frankly, very eloquent, no notes, two hours. The last sentence of the day, he said, before we were dismissed that day, was, I think within five years, we'll have a major terrorist attack inside the United States. Tuesday morning, September 11th, we came into class, and on the first break, they turned a TV on for on a screen. It was on CNN, and we saw the first smoking tower. And during that break, that 10-minute break, we saw the second airplane uh, on television hit the tower. By the uh, early afternoon, they said, the class is over. Go drive, find a way to get home. So I rented a car and drove back to Fort Worth, Texas. So incredibly vivid memory. Jack, how about you? Well, thanks, Rich. Um, and it really is an interesting time to kind of reflect back on 20 years ago and where we all were and what we were doing. And at the time, I was in command of the, a military police battalion. Um, I had just transitioned over from the infantry, so I was just getting my feet settled. Um, I was on the phone with my wife, and during the conversation, she just let out a, oh, oh. And I was like, you know, I don't normally watch TV at work. 
And I said, what's going on? And she said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I've been to New York a bunch of times. And, you know, anyone that's been in a plane, you, you can see it from 20 miles out. So it's, it's not an accident. And so you start figuring out what, you know, how, how bad is this? What's going on? Um, and so I told her I had to get off the phone with her and uh, just kind of start checking what was going on in the world and flipped on the TV. Then we saw the second plane hit. And when we saw the second plane hit, I mean, obviously it was clear to everybody, you know, the country was under attack. Um, we put out the call to all our units and um, we had soldiers reporting in. And within hours, we were deployed to guard critical sites uh, in the U.S. at uh, nuclear power plants, uh, bridges, overpasses, um, um, you know, water reservoirs. And we did that for roughly uh, two and a half weeks. And then we received orders to go in and, and secure seven airports in the U.S., which, you know, was something two weeks earlier was unthought of putting, you know, U.S. troops on the ground in public airports. Uh, we did that for seven months. And then we received orders from there to go to Afghanistan uh, and then Iraq. We kind of rolled from mission to mission to mission that we had about a three-year worth of blur um, that took us all around the world. Uh, but it obviously changed lives, um, something you'll never forget. And that feeling on that morning of, of just um, how did this all happen so quick? And I'd been, in, I'd been a counter-terrorist uh, instructor back in the 80s. And, and much like the uh, general retired general had mentioned, um, you know, it's a matter of when, not if. And, but never, I, I don't think anyone imagined something like that. Yeah, I remember studying counterterrorism a year before at Commander General Staff College, and we had the same conversations, not not a matter of if, but when. Uh, Dana, you had a really unique perspective that we had a chance to talk to you about on the podcast back in March, but you're right across the river at Bowling Air Force Base. Tell us about that day. Well, thank you so much. And uh, Rich, thank you for this conversation. So important. And it's so great to be back with uh, fellow service members and uh, colleagues and friends. And yes, I mean, I, I got to start with that, the, the, the comment of, you know, we just, who would have thought that beautiful blue morning uh, as, as we all were kind of entering the day. And I was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Air Force uh, commander of a support command at Bowling Air Force Base with a uh, mission that we had for accountability of personnel and casualty reporting. We ended up uh, identification of remains as well as family assistance for those in need. And that morning we had no idea. I was heading into a, a meeting with uh, first sergeant, two chief master sergeants, one for the bowling uh, support side and one for the Pentagon, as well as my uh, vice commander. And we had seen what happened with the twin towers and kind of were going, you know, once the first plane hit, we, we thought that just can't be like, that's odd. Like did the pilot had a Harvard attack? I mean, all of us. And then when the second one, it's like, this is not, this is either really bizarre or this is can't be, uh, you know, a, a, a correlation here of something that doesn't matter. This is really serious. And then we went into our meeting processing that. And a sergeant came in a few minutes later saying, ma'am, uh, the Pentagon's been hit. And I had this huge picture window at my back and I could see the eyes of my senior leadership team looking out. And behind me was this it really looked like a mushroom cloud. And at that time, uh, we knew that something uh, disastrous has just happened. 
And my chief master sergeant said, ma'am, uh, you know, by your leave, can I go to the Pentagon? Basically, can I go into harm's way? And I knew we needed him to do that. Uh, and then I made a quick phone call to my retired Marine husband, who, by the way, General Wilhelm is one of his great mentors and he and Valerie uh, amazing. And I echo everything you said about him, General Bradley. And uh, I made one phone call to him. He answered the phone and said, I'm on my way to get the girls. Both of our daughters, four months old and just under three, were in the Pentagon daycare. So I, uh, once I realized he had the family, you know, I had the mission and the mission for uh, our, our squadron and support. So uh, I will just say that I think everybody had raw emotions. Uh, the amygdala hijack, we talk about, you know, fight or flight or freeze. And yet I think what happened was people went into what we had trained for and that resolve to lean into the roles and the responsibilities that we had practiced that we had to perform. And uh, that's really what got us to have the resilience to stick together and uh, fulfill the mission. And that evolved. Uh, I, six months later, we were still doing 24-hour operations. We were still, and I think everybody's nodding, you know, if you could see this, it's like we started realizing that, you know, putting cones up and, and going into certain kinds of temporary security was not the future. We were making some permanent changes that we need to, to uh, um, the world had changed, we had changed. So it, uh, to this day, I think it's that raw in our DNA wiring of what the importance of that moment meant and the, the importance of urgency that we have to stay vigilant in our pursuit of freedom. Now, oh, well said, Dana. You know, I, the first time I went to uh, Afghanistan was 2002. I think the last time was around 2013. And the conflict in the environment changed so much over those years in that country. Uh, Dana, tell us about your experience in Afghanistan. Yeah, mine was actually a, a relatively small window in terms of my personal footprint in Afghanistan. It was in uh, April, March, April of 2008. And then again in January of 2009. And I, just to put it into context, I was uh, the dean of the faculty at the Air Force Academy, and we were deploying, um, I mean, even between 2007 to 2008, I think with 200 fold uh, increase in deployments of, of faculty to go support what was happening in, um, you know, the global war on terror, both, I mean, mostly in Afghanistan and Iraq at that time, although we had, you know, uh, Djibouti and some other, you know, needs as well in Kuwait. My role and primarily the faculty's role was to support developing along with West Point the uh, National Military Academy Afghanistan, bringing together people from throughout Afghanistan to have a professional you know, development opportunity to be part of a professional force for the Army Air Corps. And so my time there was really working alongside of people to build their academy, to provide the infrastructure, to help with curriculum development, to help understand how do you, you know, have governance of a faculty, to, you know, develop kind of an honor system, uh, the supply chain, all of that. It was really in that support role. My second time there was with the West Point uh, uh, Superintendent, uh, General Hangeback, to go in for their first graduation, uh, where President Karzai was their uh, speaker, and to celebrate, you know, the 
I think it was 84 new graduates from there. We called it uh, uh, East Point, <laughs> but it was the, uh, you know, the National Military Afghanistan. It was a very fulfilling mission. Now, having said that, I will say we started that in 2003 and it started to drop off a little bit in 2011, 2012. And that might have been that window that I have the most experience. Oh, thank you, Jack. You actually served two tours in Afghanistan, one fairly early, I think, 2002, 2003. And then you went back 2011. Tell us about your experiences and what you saw change. It was it was a pretty you know, when we first got there in 2002. Um, it was a pretty interesting place. Bagram Air Base uh, had one building on it in the entire base. It was all I remember. And moon dust. Um, and when you went into um, um, uh, Kabul, you drove around. You could drive around Chicken Street and all those places. And we, we did it in thin-skinned vehicles. And I, I don't even remember if we had body armor or not because right after the initial invasion, it, it was a fairly permissive environment in the places that we held. Um, you know, I had units in uh, Jacobabad, Pakistan, uh, Karnish, Karnabad, Uzbekistan. We had them down in uh, Kandahar, uh, Bagram, and Kabul. And so flying around to those different portions of the country, I was able to get a pretty good perspective of what was going on there. Um, but as we looked at those initial training forces, and, and there was a special forces group out in um, the Kabul Military Training Center that was working with the French Foreign Legion to train the Afghans at the time, they were in pretty rough shape. I mean, the, the you know the left and the right foot marching was 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 complex actions back then, and you know you kind of walked away saying, "Oh boy, we got we had our work cut out for us here." And and returning back, um, back in I went I went there in 2010 for a site recon prior to the 11-12 deployment. Uh, it was an entirely different place. There were 35,000 troops at Bagram. Everything was built up. Um, the population in Kabul had gone from 600,000 to 3 million, and, but not much infrastructure had, impro had improved. But we did see a great deal uh, of movement forward as far as the professionalism of the Afghan forces. Um, and we could see, we, we could see you know, that they were on their way. And, and by then they had Afghan special forces and commandos that were doing uh, a lot of great work. Um, we still had that tremendous insider threat, which was just a very difficult situation. And, and it, and, you know, and when you look retrospectively at it, I remember um, in my time after the military ha having a beer with a, a special forces sergeant uh, who had lost uh, a leg during an attack. And when you look at the inside threat, it, it's easy to second guess it. But in this particular case, um, the Afghan commando had been recognized and he received a phone call that the Taliban was in his house with his wife and children. And if he didn't perpetrate that insider attack, they would be slaughtered. And he did not want to do it, but his wife and kids' lives were at stake. And he turned the guns and, and fired, and he was, you know, killed very quickly. Um, but but you, you can kind of sympathize a little bit when you, when you know all those different circumstances um, and see what they were up against as well, um, which obviously led to the future and some of the challenges that we saw this past year. Oh, absolutely. John, you have a really unique perspective. You served in Vietnam in the military, but now serving a different way in Afghanistan through your foundation. What are your impressions of the conflict and the country? From my perspective in uh, Vietnam, uh, I did close air support missions. And um, when I was the commander of 10th Air Force in the time period we're talking about going into Afghanistan, 
I was flying F-16s with a squadron of, of very young pilots who were half my age and who were training for uh, flying missions in the Middle East. In fact, uh, before September 11th, several months before, my F-16 squadrons were scheduled to deploy um, to fly missions over southern Iraq in Operation Southern Watch. And it just so happens that uh, after September 11th, they, this, these squadrons were supposed to deploy in September, and they did deploy. And then in October, when President Bush said it's time to go to war in Afghanistan, my F-16 squadrons flew the very first combat missions over Afghanistan in October 2001. I was very proud of them. They were there for three months flying missions, came home a few days before Christmas, in fact. And uh, it was quite an extensive uh, effort because the missions were flown from a base that required hours of flying over water and at night. And each mission in an F-16, which is a pretty cramped cockpit, was uh, 10 to 12 hours long, multiple refuelings, and and then working with uh, support from uh, JTACs on the ground in Afghanistan to drop their bombs. Every mission they flew was like a typical overseas deployment flying from the United States to Europe or flying to uh, the Far East. It's just an incredible effort when you're flying combat missions that are 10 and 12 hours long in a single seat airplane. You don't have a bathroom to go to, you don't have food, you don't have, you have uh, a little bit of water perhaps. Very uh, vivid recollections of that. I was very, very proud of them. And over the years, as the commander of 10th Air Force and later as the commander of the Air Force Reserve Command, I deployed hundreds and thousands of, of Air Force Reserve airmen in every mission set the Air Force does, fighters, bombers, cargo, uh, search and rescue, combat search and rescue, medical, mission support, all, all of our functions. And I would visit these uh, airmen in that role. So I went to Afghanistan, not for combat ever myself. I was there a few days at a time as a somewhat senior officer, visiting Air Force Reserve Airmen, talking to them, having town hall meetings, asking them what we could do to prepare them better, thanking them for deploying, requests asking that they volunteer to go again. And every person that we ever sent there was a volunteer. And I was very proud of that. And I went to visit Airmen five times in Afghanistan, as I said, on small short trips, but I have uh, great recollections of all of those uh, times and the wonderful airmen and how they worked so well in the Air Force missions there. Well, how about the foundation too? What, what's your, how has your experience changed through this foundation that you and your wife have formed? The foundation started because a little nine-year-old girl out in a village begged me for some boots and I was handing out some humanitarian aid that I had uh, taken over there for a volunteer effort that was going on at Bagram Air Force Base. It was called Operation Care and soldiers and airmen in their off-duty time would take uh, things that had been sent from home, blankets and winter clothing and school supplies, toys and things like that, and take them and give them to local village women who were allowed to visit the base at Bagram to go to the American hospital or the Egyptian army hospital or the South Korean army hospital at Bagram and get medical care. And as they would leave the base, these soldiers and airmen would give them bags of things. So I, I told my wife about these things and she 
turned our house at Bowling Air Force Base into a Goodwill store, basically, and and uh, collected 40,000 pounds of things from thrift shops and, and uh, schools and churches, donations, and we carried it over on a C-17, 40,000 pounds of it. And I gave it to these airmen that were and soldiers who were doing Operation Care. I went out to a village with some uh, security folks, OSI folks, and uh, was handing out some of these things uh, in a village. And this little nine-year-old girl named Lamia came up and begged me for boots like I was wearing with my flight suit and uh, desert boots. She was wearing sandals. It was December. It's cold. She's wearing a very, very tattered sweater. I have a picture of her from that moment when I met her. She begged me for boots and I didn't have any. So we ended up uh, sending her boxes of things to the OSI and they took it to her. And uh, it ended up changing the rest of my life. When I retired uh, a year later, my wife and I started this foundation and my wife and I have been to Afghanistan seven times together now. And we've built schools for girls and put legs on kids. We've sent three and a half million pounds of humanitarian aid there. And our seven trips there, we would stay about a month at a time and uh, do our work. And we're still continuing to do our work. We're even uh, feeding people now that are very hungry. And uh, it's obviously very difficult these days uh, since the Taliban has taken power, but we're still feeding uh, hundreds of people through our efforts in the foundation. But it's the Lamia Afghan Foundation and and it all started because of this little nine-year-old girl and I never would have suspected that uh, that would have changed my life so dramatically, but that's all I've done. All I've done in retirement is, is uh, work as a volunteer in this foundation work in Afghanistan. And it's been gratifying because we've educated tens of thousands of girls in our school. We've run schools in IDP camps, as well as the, the brick and mortar schools that we built. So long answer to your short question. I'm sorry. No, but that was absolutely wonderful. I'm just curious is, uh, are you still in touch with Lamia? Yes. Yes, I am. And now she's 22 years old. Uh, we just sent food to her family and a little bit of money to her family uh, through some intermediaries. We're very careful about Americans doing anything for Afghans now because of the threat it puts them under. So we have ways to get some money and food to people. In fact, we are paying for some food today for several families, about 20 families we're going to feed. And uh, so we've got some efforts going on, but yes, we stay in touch with Lamia. We check on her and, uh, and speak to her periodically. And uh, it's just really wonderful to have stayed in touch with her all these years. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I want to turn to our recent withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's it's been widely criticized in a lot of circles. I don't want to get into the politics, but I would love to hear all of your thoughts on what we might have done better and perhaps what work remains to be done. Let's let's start with Jack. Jack, any thoughts? You know, like everybody, we all have some strong opinions on this, on whether we needed to, should have. And, and I think that's, that, you know, I'm seeing water well under the bridge at this point. Um, I, you know, a concern I've always had is the, is the loss of, of, of eyes on the ground there. And, and that was the reason we went in. And, and I, it, you know, with the work I've done in the, in the post-military career with warriors uh, affected by the invisible wounds, I, I saw the impact on them. So I had a pretty um, personal response to this because it is personal. And, and, you know, I have Gold Star spouses questioning, you know, the loss of their loved one over this and the value of it. And I've always had to come back to the fact that, you know, we were tasked with, number one, preventing a second 9-11 and 
also preventing Afghanistan from becoming a, a safe haven. Um, and we did that for 20 years. There was no second 9-11. And so their, their mission was a success and it had great value. When you look at now where we've kind of lost that visibility and it's now becoming a safe haven, that's that's where you start hitting those that friction point. Um, as someone, my last assignment there was a CG of Kabul province. And so when, I, when we looked and saw that that was the final staging ground, um, that was tough to watch because it, it, it was difficult to control Kabul um, when we had all our troops there. Um, we had so many terrible attacks while I was there. We, we, had, we lost 17 troops in a, in a suicide bomb, vehicle-borne suicide bomb, uh, bomb, uh, bombing um, that was not preventable. And my counterpart uh, was Lieutenant General Salangi from the uh, Kabul uh, military. And he had fought with the Mujahideen against the Russians in that area. And so I pulled him aside and I said, what do we got to do this road that leads out by the parliament building out to um, KMTC? How, how do we protect our guys here? And he said, it's not defensible. You know, we, we took out the Russians there. No matter what they did, we couldn't do it. And so we eventually stopped driving out there and we, we moved everything by helicopter. But it kind of shows you how difficult it was. We really, you know, for all intents and purposes, we should have staged out of Bagram. We had so much standoff room there and we could have protected folks and not placed people at risk the way we did um, by pulling out in the manner we did. Um, we've caused some challenges. And, and I think um, that's what remains to be seen now is where do we go from there? Um, because, you know, it's done now, you know what I mean? And, and the, the band-aid's been pulled off. Um, our, our warriors are dealing with the challenges associated with that. But now it's going to come back to the, the national security issues that we're going to have to face. Oh, thank you, Jack. Dana, how about you? Any thoughts? Oh, I want to echo what uh, uh, Joe Hammond just mentioned. And and there's so much of uh, importance of looking back, but but really we have to kind of look back in order to look ahead. I know I'm quoting Winston Churchill there. But I think one of the things I just have to say is when we were all watching what was transpiring, there was incredible pain uh, for anybody who has been in Afghanistan and people who have lost uh, people that we consider to be um friends uh, and, and colleagues and, and not all, uh, you know, Americans, but our allied partners, as well as our Afghan partners, our interpreters. And so there was, I think, a deep despair of, you know, almost the death and dying grief process of disbelief. Like, is this really happening? Kind of like 9-11, like uh, denial, like what is going on to really having it resonate with trying to barter, like how can this be good? When, what do we do with this and how do we move forward? Uh, I, I will say I'm also... You know, it, it's raw because, as um, you know, we know there was also there was the, the Taliban took many lives. <laughs> and so from an enemy perspective, it's like, how do we see them as now good? <laughs> and there's also the part of the insider threat hurt, which um, my executive officer, Major Phil Ambard, uh, was one of uh, insider threat, you know, killing of nine uh, in Kabul. And he uh, was mentoring. He wasn't even weaponed. He was in a meeting on communications. And an Army Air Corps colonel, who I had been in a picture with when I was visiting in 2009, standing by President Karzai's helicopter, um, opened fire and killed nine of our American mentors. And they were not armed. And so how do we get through all of that? Like the question of was this worth it, I think is, is what everybody kind of thought. And of course, I loved 
uh, President Bush's quote that reinforced uh, the fact that yes, it was worth it. Our presence there mattered. Now, what happened, you know, in the in the years I, I want to say 2012 onward was a little bit of maybe um, uh, you know starting to lose ground of some of the great momentum, and then you know the scale just tipped in that last grain of sand that the Taliban was able to um, really take over um, some important ground. Now, I also believe, and I think that's true of many, like the SecDev at the time, uh, Ash Carter has said this as well, uh, maybe uh, keeping a presence is incredibly important. And one, one data point is without having Afghanistan and some of our uh, important locations like Bagram, uh, we would not have been able to uh, do the operation to get Osama bin Laden which is one of our great um, uh, successes, I think, uh, in fighting terrorism with our allied partners. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that, but there's this bittersweet part of, I feel like some presence there would probably have been, uh, but I also can empathize with our current leadership and what they had as a p political pressure and momentum uh, to, to get us out of what was considered a, um, uh, a forever war, which uh, I, I don't, think that that's necessarily the right framing for us to have about Afghanistan. Oh, thank you, Dana. And I, and I agree. It mattered. Uh, I think that was well said. John, any thoughts on, on our withdrawal? Yes, please. And I, I agree with uh, both the uh, generals with what they've said entirely. And I would, I would add a, a couple of things, if I may. I absolutely believe it was worth it because I've got to tell you, when you when you go through uh, all around Kabul and surrounding provinces and, and you see thousands of girls walking to school with their umbrellas to keep the sun off them and their, their, their beautiful white scarves over their head and, and black and the, and the boys in their blue shirts and black pants. And when you see them going to school, I will tell you, it is worth it because we have, we just my foundation and many, many others as well have educated tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of girls over the years. And you cannot take that education away from them. Now, the Taliban may stop uh, what education girls can get beyond sixth grade the way it is right now. But I'll tell you, those girls who are now women who got an education over the last 20 years, they'll make a difference in that country. And I do believe things will change ultimately. So that's the comment I would say, uh, make about, and and the opportunities that grown women had had over the last 20 years also. You can't take those things away from, from them, even though uh, the government has changed. As far as the withdrawal, I fully understand why we needed to leave. I just, but I'm older than the rest of you, and I, I certainly remember Saigon 1975, and uh, that was not a pretty picture. And August of 2021 was not a pretty picture in Kabul. My question is, I just, I wish we had started a withdrawal five months earlier, six months earlier, four months earlier, when things were peaceful, the roads were clear, the airport was open, everything could operate. I know that doing a withdrawal at that, or evacuations at that time would have shown a lack of support for the government. I understand that as well, but I think we could have, planned a better operation. My foundation, I submitted names 
hundreds of names, 500 names plus, to the State Department, to the Defense Department, to the Joint Staff, Afghan Neo Cell, to evacuate people that we knew. I sent letters of introduction to people we were trying to extract, and none of them got out, essentially. And uh, I just think that the evacuation could have done better, been better planned and executed better if we had started it before we pulled all of our troops out and then we had to put 5,000 back in. So I just, uh, I'm devastated by it. I'm still working to get people out. My country director and his family are still in there and they are under threat because they've worked with us for so many years, 13 years in our foundation. Um, I had a family that went to the airport and two little children were pulled over the wall and the mother was pulled over the wall and then the suicide bombing took place and the mother was fatally wounded there and the children were injured and taken to the medical facility and uh, on the airport grounds and put on a C-17 the next day and they went to Landstuhl Hospital and then to Walter Reed and now they are with their aunt in Alexandria, Virginia. The father of these children is still in Kabul uh, with a son and we're trying to get them out. These are people we had tried to get out. So I'm working, I've been working for, for several months now trying to get uh, support to bring the, them out on a State Department airplane and uh, I'm hopeful that it will uh, happen soon. One more thing I would say is the, uh, the last, uh, the drone attack that we had uh, that killed uh, the family of 10 people, I was trying, I had sent his name to the State Department and the Defense Department. The man that was killed with the seven children working for, he was working for an American nonprofit, Nutrition Education International. I had his name on my list to get him out. We were, he was a loyal employee of an American NGO and wanted to come to the United States. And he was killed, uh, unfortunately, in a horrible mistake in that last drone attack that we made in Kabul. And uh, it's just devastating. I had worked with NEI for years. We'd sent soybeans there. We'd worked with Dr. Stephen Kwan, who's one of the best people I've ever known in my life, helping Afghan farmers learn how to plant and harvest soybeans and provide nutritious food for families all over Afghanistan. Anyway, it's just, I have uh, some pretty bad memories of all those things, and I'm still trying to help uh, those families and others uh, as we try to still evacuate people. Oh, absolutely. Some, some, some tragic stories there, and uh, hopefully we can continue to get some of those folks out and, and take care of those families. Well, Jack, I've got a question I want to direct to you. It's in your area of expertise. I, I know a number of veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan still struggle with both physical wounds and the invisible mental wounds of war. And you and Dana have both mentioned that. What resources exist for our veterans and their caregivers, and, and are we doing enough? Well, I, 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 you know, when we look at this and, and we kind of have that retrospective look now and all the numbers stop popping up, we had roughly 3 million men and women serve in Iraq and Afghanistan over those 20 years. Um, of that, you know, we lost 7,070 uh, killed in action. Uh, we've lost a stunning 30,000 to the invisible wounds uh, after they've returned home. Um, almost four times the number that were killed in action have died here at home. So that gives you a sense of the impact of these injuries. 
We also have 1.8 million of the 3 million with some type of permanent disability. And my guess is a, a good chunk of that has to do with mental health and, and traumatic brain injury, the signature wounds for these wars. Um, we, I, are we doing enough? I, I, don't, I don't believe we are. I think we, there's an implied trust between service members and this country when we send them off to war. And, and you know, a lot of people forget the fact that this is the first war we've fought in our country's history since the American Revolution that was fought with all volunteers. Um, those of us who were in uniform, everybody here, we were in before 9-11 and we, we continued on in our service. But for every young man and woman that joined after 9-11, they raised their hand knowing they were going to get sent to war. Remarkable generation of people. And they take a lot of hits because of the whole millennial stuff and the Gen Z and all that. But they all raised their hand and showed up when we needed them. Um, the question is, on the back end, are we taking care of them to the best of our abilities? And when you look at the fact that we have been pumping money into to solutions that haven't worked, the VA budget went from $40 billion to $300 billion this year. And the, and the suicides are at the same level. They're not going down. They're actually going up. Um, and so we've got to look at a new approach. Uh, recently, in a conversation with Secretary McDonough, they pointed out that only um, six of the 20 people that die by veterans that die by suicide every day uh, are being cared for from the, at the VA. And that's the problem because that's traditional. 80% of Americans come back from war and they get care in the private sector. They don't go to the VA for their care. And so you don't break that cycle and suddenly go for one thing, especially when, when you look at mental health injuries like PTSD, it's an injury of avoidance. You don't want to acknowledge it. You don't want to recognize it. You don't want to deal with it. And so if any barrier to care and, and if you have to go see somebody and drive three hours to go get a, a you know, treatment or a diagnosis, it's just it's, it's not going to work. Um, and, and we've been spending a decade with the team I have at, at um, MGH and Harvard um, coming up with new solutions. And, and, and we've found some good ones um, and we've been able to make a difference. It's just bringing those to scale now. Um, we need a much more broad-based approach where we, we deliver this care at community-based settings, keep it under the VA rubric because we want to have that, that, that oversight, but we, we need to spread it out and, and get it into the communities. Because if you look across healthcare, that's exactly what's happening with every major healthcare system in the country. They realize that you can't have these castles in, in every big city and everybody comes to the castle for their care. Um, and they recognize that. And so if the for-profits have recognized that's the solution, I think we need to do a better job because everybody is concerned. There, there are all sorts of um, panel studies. I, I spoke before a Congressional Oversight Committee a few weeks ago, um, and, and everybody's outraged. But we've been outraged for 20 years, and, and I think we need to put words to deeds and actually start addressing this because – Every day we still lose 20 veterans to suicide. Oh, thank you, Jack. And I appreciate that. I agree. There's much, much more to be done. Well, two more questions. Uh, the first one from, for all of you, what have we learned in the past 20 years, in particular as a military? Let's start with Dana. Uh, I think I might uh, take that question and, and bridge it to what we just talked about, because, you know, I, I look at, uh, you know, and, and listen to um, both General Bradley and, and General Hammond and, and actually you too, General Ghost, what you are planning, you know, for your next chapter and you're giving back in many ways. You know, mission readiness is an incredible uh, way to uh, buoy up our youth population for our future. And I look at what General Bradley's doing in terms of, you know, reaching out to meet some growing needs in Afghanistan, despite the situation that we're 
we're facing right now uh, in our our political decisions. And and I look at General Hammond and and I've been close and personal with Home Base and the work that they're doing uh, that's filling a need that is um, a growing need. And so I also work with veterans at Harvard University and how veterans responded to what happened when we pulled out of Afghanistan and their first reaction in their pain was to reach out and start, you know, figuring out who was it that we can help get out of Afghanistan or who we can help, you know, provide safety for while they're still there. And and so I guess my answer to the question is what we have learned over these past 20 years is 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 part of a I guess the human condition of wanting to serve and and needing to serve as giving ourselves maybe significance and meaning. And how are we honoring that? Uh, you know, in this COVID time frame, how are we honoring uh, our our healthcare providers? How are we honoring you know the person who is you know putting themselves at risk even before the vaccine, but even now you know as we're having some spikes uh, you know as at the checkout counter. And so I guess the message I have is maybe what maybe went wrong in terms of uh, some of our latter days in Afghanistan was how do we take our humility, which is the virtue of service into everything we do. And and maybe that's part of how we think about what we've learned in terms of what we do going forward. Uh, the world's more interconnected as ever before. And we're interconnected in the challenges of climate, of environment, of cybersecurity, of health and pandemics. And, and so how are we uh, connecting in some kind of uh, humanity and service to those greater callings? Oh, well said. Uh, John, how about you? What have we learned? It's a difficult question for me. Uh, my wife and I talk a lot about uh, lessons learned uh, and spending 41 years in the Air Force, uh, I spent and 12 years of that in the Pentagon. I, I've been to a lot of meetings that were about lessons learned and I'm very skeptical that we learn lessons very well. Uh, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, but I'm not sure we actually learn them. I, my, Jan and I talk about this and we get frustrated in our work in Afghanistan because we see things that are going on and, and big projects that are planned by USAID in Afghanistan. And, and we worked at the village level. We just believe that, that working at the village level, uh, you get ground truth from people that you meet. And uh, we, we felt like uh, many things that our government was doing there all with all well-intentioned, believe me, but think money could have been better spent in other ways. Uh, I think our military efforts there were phenomenal. Our people were just amazing. The 3 million plus that have served there have served this country well and should be proud of their service and families who've lost uh, loved ones and and have injured in their family, we need to continue to think about them and support them and do everything we can, uh, as we were saying earlier about uh, veterans' issues. Those are all important. We learn lessons that way. We learn how to fight better. But uh, I worry that uh, you know we didn't learn enough lessons from Vietnam, even I believe, and and some of those we maybe misapplied in Afghanistan. So I'm a little more skeptical about lessons learned than, than others may be. And maybe I'm on the, on the wrong page here, but I, I just uh, worry that 
I'm not talking militarily. I'm just thinking national policy-wise. I'm not sure we learn the lessons we should learn from these war efforts we undergo, like Vietnam and Afghanistan. But there's a lot that we can learn from it, and I hope we will do things better in the future. Uh, I, I have to agree with you. I don't. I don't think we learn well as a nation sometimes. And uh, what is it? Those who are those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, and you've got a unique perspective on that, for as you said, from Vietnam. Being the oldest guy here, uh, I started my service in 1967. And like I said, I'm, I'm very proud of the service. I believe that what I've done since then is maybe more important than my 41 years in the Air Force. But I will tell you what I just really find gratifying is from uh, the time that I started my service in 1967 and the way the American people viewed the military then compared to how it shifted in the 1990s after the first Gulf War and then on into the last 20 years of, of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the way the American people feel about the American military has just made me so proud and, and so gratified that uh, we are so well thought of as uh, military members that's been a great change that I've seen over the course of the last 50 years. And I'm just quite proud of that. The American people have a great respect for the American military and what they've done. Well, maybe that's something we have learned as a nation. And, and, and I think, as Dana said, maybe we are now learning to appreciate others on the front lines, first responders, nurses, doctors, healthcare professionals during this COVID pandemic. So, uh, maybe some lessons learned there. Jack, how about you? What have we learned in the last 20 years? Well, first of all, I don't want to mention how old I was when General Bradley joined the uh, Air Force. Um, but I, I, I very much appreciate his perspective as General Bournes. I, I think on the military side, we, we learned a great deal and we've grown some incredible military leaders. Um, it, this, this became a multi-generational war where Fathers and sons and mothers and daughters all fought in sometimes the same ground over over two decades. Um, when you look at our senior leaders in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, um, they've got years of combat experience, good and bad. You know what I mean? And, and there's good and bad lessons in everything we learn, uh, and we get better for it. Uh, my worry is, as a nation, we 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 whether we just move past this, gloss over it, or, or take some serious lessons learned. We fought a 20-year war one year at a time, uh, and that was probably the biggest calamity. And each administration for the past four administrations, no one had a plan um, other than to go in. After we went in, there was, no, there was no plan on really what we were going to do while we were there and how we were going to, what success would look like. And, and, the, and, and the description and the idea of success kept shifting. I, I think if we had looked at what we had hoped to do initially, and that was to prevent a second 9-11 and to prevent it from becoming a safe haven. If that was our focus point, we got, you know, and by, along the way to try and build some stability in this country, we would have done a better job, but trying to establish our form of a democracy in a place that doesn't even acknowledge that it's a country. Um, it, it was, it was just a, it was a, a fool's errand. Um, and I think, you know, for the folks on the ground in traditional linear battlefields, you know, the, the infantry guys at the tip of the spear, the only ones that really have a taste of the war. This wasn't the case. It was an asymmetrical battlefield where everybody was at the tip at different tips. The tips were everywhere. Um, but those are also where you get your connectivity with the people. And so we all had these amazing touch points with uh, Afghans, Iraqis, 
Um, we had the good fortune to build seven schools, adopt an orphanage. And I had more, I enjoyed my time when once a week when I'd get out to our orphanage and just bring a bag of candy. And just like General Bradley mentioned, you would just bring that stuff. And every, when anybody found out you had that, you would raise money in the winter and bring tons and tons of blankets out to the villages. And that mattered. Um, I, I always remember I had this salty old Mujahideen uh, village elder uh, on the edge of Kabul and we wanted to build a school there. And he, he, you know, he had that, you know, you know, sideways look at me like, what do you want from this? And, and he also pointed out to me, he was at the edge of, a, at the back end of a valley. And on the ride in there, it was littered with Soviet vehicles. And he explained to me that Soviets came there and kind of ran that, tried to run that, run that village as well. And he stacked them up like cordwood at the edge and they didn't come back. And so his message was loud and clear, but I explained to him, I don't want anything. I want to, I want to build a school so your kids can learn to read and they can read the Quran and read that it doesn't say, you know, blow yourself up. It doesn't say all these things and that they can have, you know, become educated. If they can become educated, they'll think these things through and they can work towards democracy. And and I I believe what, you know, General Bradley mentioned a moment ago, I think the seeds have been planted. Uh, A lot of the kids that I saw in 2002 are in their twenties and they've had a taste of freedom. They've had a taste of democracy. They've had education. And so it's going to be a tough road for them without our assistance. But I think they once you've had a taste of that, you can't go back. Um, and so I think the Afghans have learned some things that are going to help us on, on our on our operational piece. We learned to partner. I mean, Af, you know, as, as we all know, I had Mongolian battalions. We were partnered with Bulgarians, Jordanians, you name it, Koreans. They, they were, we had a pretty solid multinational force, much more than we did in Iraq, um, as far as a multinational force, and not all the partners were rowing at the same speed as the rest of us. Um, but we had to learn to partner. We had to learn to partner at a much greater level. Um, and I think that's another lesson learned that we did take from this. I just hope the bigger picture lessons learned on throwing money at the problem is not the area. All you do is, is create a bunch of Afghan millionaires that then, then move to America. I mean, I, we were writing checks for property that were going to Florida. Um, and the whole intent of, of paying a little more was to get money into the economy. Um, the, the money we were throwing around there was just at, at a ridiculous level. And, and I think we, we did more harm than good with some of that. Um, and we saw, you know, when the president was flying away, he probably had truckloads of money with him when he was departing. Um, our lessons learned as a country, I think that's where, you know, the, the, that's the hanging uh, issue out there is do we learn from this? Um, and, and stay focused on what we're there to accomplish and stay true to the mission and not try and build U.S. cities within another country where we're op- where operational space is. And, and this t- one year to one year war at a time, you know, you go, you go for the duration and you get what it needs to be done and you stay until it's finished with, with you know, your, your, your force. Um, you can't make this a multi-generational war again like that. I think that that's where the American people lost interest um, and, and their attention span to some of the more strategic issues kind of faded away. Oh, thank you. Last question. Uh, I want to hear about you. How did the last 20 years affect you or change you personally? Uh, John, I think I know what you're going to say, but let's start with you. Well, I I think I've already said it. I I interrupted a moment ago and I I do believe that uh, what it's done is I, I knew before I retired from the Air Force that I didn't want to go uh, do any kind of work for a defense company or be a consultant or anything. I decided I wanted to do nonprofit work. I just didn't know exactly what it was going to be. 
my wife talks about people that go uh, on these fabulous trips around the world and do things. And she says, you've only taken me to Afghanistan. I said, yeah, but how many other journalists' wives have gone to Afghanistan and worked there? So she's unique. She's the heart and soul of our work. What I've learned is that uh, giving, um, trying to help people who are less fortunate is, is uh, what I was taught to do. Uh, all my life religiously and uh, as an officer in the Air Force is to try to help people. It's just been gratifying for me that uh, to particularly to help girls get an education because you can't have a successful country if you only get, educate half your people. So my focus has been on girls in Afghanistan and giving them and women opportunities. And I do believe that this has been the most important work of my life. Uh, albeit, I'm I'm proud of my Air Force service. Believe me, I, I loved my airmen. I loved everything I did. There were heartaches in there as well, but I think this work work in Afghanistan has been most gratifying. The best answer I ever got to a question: Jan and I sat down in a tent in an IDP camp in Kabul, and there were fifty thousand people living in IDP camps in Kabul. Believe me, when uh, when we were there many years ago, we sat down. We asked this village elder probably uneducated, what do you need? And he said, first, please educate our children. Second, please clean up our water so our babies don't get sick. I mean, they were living in absolute squalor in tents for years at a time in the city of Kabul. It's just, it's heartrending. But all he wanted was to educate the children of his village there in the IDP camp and keep his babies from getting sick. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for clothing, blankets, or anything. I just thought that was the best answer I'd ever heard uh, for when you ask what someone needs for help. So uh, it's just been a, a great journey for me. I feel proud of the work that we've done. We've helped a little bit. There are many others that are doing work there, and uh, we work with a lot of other organizations and people trying to improve the lives of Afghans. I hope we can continue to do that and keep people alive because times are hard there, winter's on, and people are starving, and uh, so they need great help. So we'll continue our work. Thank you. Thank you. Jack, how about you? What have you learned personally? I think probably through those you know, deployments overseas and post-career, I, I think I've become a more compassionate person. Um, I know after 9-11, I, you know, when I shipped out in 2002 and three to Iraq, it was to go revenge. You know, that, that was my number one thing is to go, go, go get some of the folks that did this. And, and over time, you start realizing you know, when you get to know the people and you realize that, you know, between those two countries, there were 50 million hostages um, that were released. And then, you know, what happened to them afterwards as far as maintaining their own countries is different. But when you go in there and see that, the majority of those people were just people wanting, just as General Bradley mentioned, they wanted water. Uh, they wanted in Iraq, they wanted electricity enough to grow, you know, cool, you know, cool the food in 120 degrees. Um, and they wanted their kids to be safe. And, and I'd say, you know, in both those populations, 80 percent of both those countries, that's all those people wanted. And in those seven schools I built, we had to build a, 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 a water pump in each one because they did. That was the only water pump in the village. Um, they were drinking out of shallow streams and that's where they were getting sick. Um, and, and so by the time I got back to 2010, 11 and 12 in Afghanistan, I was, I think I was a little older, a little wiser. Um, I wanted to f figure out ways to solve the, the terrorist problems, but I, I, I wanted to try and help do what I could to build the future there. 
Uh, and it starts with the kids, as General Bradley mentioned, because that that is the future. Um, and if they can understand a, a, a hopeful way, to, uh, a, some type of respect, um, have have, have a, an adjusted values where people do matter. Um, that's all we tried to impart on folks as best we could. There was, I couldn't, I wasn't going to fix an old Afghan general that grew up in, in war and had all sorts of hatred and greed, but it was the kids. And, and that's what lit me up every time I went there. And I think um, seeing the, the effect of all those injuries in my last assignment and seeing the suicide rate rise then um, really kind of drove me to where I am now working with home base and the, and the mission we have now. Um, so I, I think, you know, as you, as you get older, you reflect back and you, you think about, you know, you, you try and get the hate out of your heart. And, I, and the last thing I just want to say is through all those experience, whether it was going, you know, traveling to Bosnia around 2002 and then Iraq, Afghanistan, and all those countries we went to, seeing the hate, um, I, I'm pretty sick of it. And, and when I see it popping up in this country, it disgusts me. Um, I've seen the, the secretary, sectarian violence. I've seen the religious violence. You know, the, the the nonsense religious violence where it's just, you know, you, you're you just a shade different in the same faith. And for that, I've got to blow up your mosque. Um, that mentality, when you see it overseas, it, it just it just tears you apart. And then when you start seeing this country where we're at each other's throats, I, I, I really do um, become uh, a little disappointed in, in what we see, because I can see where the movie ends up if it doesn't change. Um, and and it, it is a scary prospect that most Americans who've never left the country and never seen what hatred really with the end state of where this hatred could go and, and where people can be much worse than they are now. Um, we can see that here in this country if we don't get our stuff together because it's getting close. I mean, we, we're really getting that Hatfields and McCoy thing where people lose their empathy. Um, and, and, and so anyway, I think that's another lesson learned we've got to have, but those have been overseas and, and seen this and looked into the eyes of the devil, know what can come here if we're not careful. Oh, thank you, Jack. Uh, and I agree. Uh, Dana, uh, how about you? What have, how has the past 20 years, what have you learned? How has it changed you? Yeah, well, 20 years, I mean, I was a lieutenant colonel looking at retirement and then 9-11 happened and I stayed in another 11 years. So one of the changes was, you know, I wanted to stay in what I thought was stay in the fight. You know, there's a there's a great need here. Uh, but I want to go back to what General Bradley and General Hammond said, because, uh, you know, take the hate out of your heart. I love that. Um, and, and refill it maybe with love in our hearts uh, and also focused on, you know, the youth population and also women. Uh, one of the scariest times I had in my trips to Afghanistan was when I met with a group of all women. And it's the only time I feared, I mean, I, I was weaponed up and I had a security detail. And I remember through an interpreter asking the women, you know, what did they need? Because they were treating me like uh, like I had like a, a genie, you know, to be able to help them. And and they said national security. And it it puzzled me because I was like, here they are. And, and they're saying national security is their number one need. And I said, tell me more about that. And it was really when they answered, it was we have no water. We have no Childcare. We have no, you know, I have a three-year-old who's by themselves in a mud hut looking after themselves while my infirmed husband is able to work and I have to go out to work. And it was just like, wow, lower level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's what they need by national security. And so I guess what I would say is how I've changed is I, national security is just so important to me, but what does that mean? For me personally, it means developing the next generation of, of principled public leaders. And, and that's global. Uh, certainly that's been my role at Harvard, but I also have to say it's in my children. 
And the ones that I referred to that were in the Pentagon daycare, both have chosen to serve in the military. Uh, one is at the Naval Academy, wants to be a Marine uh, and is uh, on that pathway. And the other is an officer in the Air Force who's just uh, been selected to go to helicopter training at Fort Rucker, wants to be search and rescue. And what they've done is try to transfer what they saw was trauma into people who saved them that we don't know their names, you know, the silent heroes, and they want to be able to pay it forward. And so I like to inspire in the next generation that opportunity, however they choose, but to pay something forward to make the world more just, more safe, more healthy, and a better place. So uh, that's how it's changed me. And uh, I, I can tell everybody is that, that resonates in why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, and I'm, it's a great honor to be um, kind of on this conversation together, and hopefully it will lift others up to their distinctive value for that uh, greater, greater good. Thank you. And I, I am so grateful to the three of you all. And, and you. I just think this has been an absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Hey, John, before we go, let's get, uh, if people want to learn more about the Lamia Foundation, uh, how, do, how do we find out more? Well, uh, I'd be glad to talk to anyone. Uh, I'd be glad to share my phone number, email address, whatever. But we have a website, of course, www.lamia.org, L-A-M-I-A. And, uh, but I can talk your ear off about the work we do. And, but thank you for, for asking for that. It's just L-A-M-I-A, Lamia.org. Thank you. And then, and Jack, how about the website for Homebase? Homebase.org. <laughs> Perfect. Too easy. Lieutenant General John Bradley, Brigadier General Dana Bourne, and Brigadier General Jack Hammond, thank you so much for being on today's Mission Readiness Podcast. Ben, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed that conversation. I thought it was incredible. It brought back a lot of feelings, a lot of memories. Uh, it has been an amazing past 20 years. You know, I've had the chance to work with um, all three of our, our panelists today in support of Mission Readiness's advocacy agenda. And, you know, I, I this is one of the first times I've really had the opportunity to hear hear them reflect on these experiences. And, you know, I'm, I'm very struck by um, you know, where the conversation ended up, the fact that these are three members who um, in their post or, or in these are three members who in retirement have found ways to continue to give back and continue to serve both in in areas that um, are directly correlated with with their experiences and, and service. And also they continue to donate lots of time and, and energy um, with mission readiness and other causes to ensure that the next generation is is prepared for success. So I'm grateful to have these members and yourself in our corner and uh, just a just a great conversation. No, I agree. And it just never ceases to amaze me. Some of the, the talent and the compassion and the passion of so many of our Mission Readiness uh, members. And we are very grateful for all our members in Mission Readiness. Well, thank you for listening to the Mission Readiness podcast. My co-host is Ben Goodman. Today's show was written and produced by Ben, Megan Adamczewski, Abby Ware, and John Connolly. For more about Mission Readiness or to find an archive of every episode of the podcast, visit strongnation.org. The program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. Until next time, 
Thank you for supporting our work at Mission Readiness to strengthen national security by ensuring kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble.